Welcome, everybody. It's the Stazipod. It's a question and answer episode. How fantastic is that? I have the esteemed privilege of uh, fielding your queries and uh, dishing out the information. Why am I even doing this preamble? I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to pad the runtime of this episode. In any case, it's the Stazipod. Let's go. Now, I'm recording this a little early in the week. I, I liked the questions that were being stacked up so much that I decided I'm going to hop in early and uh, I want to dig into these because they're pretty great. So, um, aside from that, I can give you a little bit of news. All the orders from uh, our last live stream have been packed up, they've been picked up, and they're on the way to you. This is, of course, the Turbo Waytail Chapter 3 Extravaganza. Uh, I am really, really anxious to hear what everybody thinks of Chapter 3. Um, it's a very important story to me, and uh, I'm excited. So, looking forward to those reviews coming in at any time. What else is happening in this wonderful month of April? Well, uh, you guys are going to, well, you patrons are going to be able to pre-order the Ice Rat 2-pack. And uh, there should be a reveal of what those final figures look like momentarily. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And um, we also have Action Figure of the Month, April. Very nice figure. I'm excited about it. Um, this is going to go out probably towards the end of this month alongside the Ice Rat 2-pack uh, pre-order. Just to reiterate, I know I've said this before, but um, if you're a patron, you will get the first chance to pre-order the 2-pack. If you want to wait and you just really want to buy one hob or you just really want to buy one of the Vector Jump, there will be an opportunity to do that as well. And then, after all those sort of opportunities have passed us by, I will put the remaining stock in the store as voted on by patrons to allow this to be a public release. Um, there's not going to be a ton, though, and uh, they will sell out pretty quick. So, if you're a patron, stand by. You'll have ordering information at some point in the near future. Very... Very excited to also get the Ice Rat to pack out to you guys. And um, I could see a bright future of ice-themed figures because I have a really uh, enticing story I want to tell in such a, a setting. Moving along to the first question, Keith Joy. I noticed on the site there is an active listing for Chromega and Sen5 fundraiser. Those of us who weren't around for the Kickstarter, uh, are we able to purchase the tier options like a pre-order and have these and have these figures be made available to us when they're ready to ship, even though the, the fundraising is over. So sadly, Keith, the answer is no. Uh, the page is still up and it is still active because I want a sort of record of the fantastic amount of money that we were able to raise together and all the stuff that got unlocked. But if you did indeed try to check out with that item, I believe it gives you an automatic refund, um, you know, a, a couple minutes after a transaction. So the pre-order, stage is closed um, you are not allowed to order at this point the reason being I've already made my purchases from the factory for the amount of goods that I needed now there will be store opportunities for the majority of the Sen5 and Chromega figures but um, as of now the pre-order it's really only for the people that were around during the fundraising campaign and uh, there's no way for me to sort of go in and add extra enrollees, as it were. So 
those details are set in stone. It's locked, and um, you're going to have to wait for the public store offering on some of those items. Gabe Berrigan, will we get an all-white Rift Killer to go with the Vector Jump? This is the Ice Rat. Uh, you just sneaked a peek uh, of... Uh, well, Gabe, you're making a couple assumptions here. You're making an assumption that that is a white uh, vector jump, and you're making an assumption that the body is also white, which uh, both could be pretty erroneous uh, ideas that you've gotten in your brain. So I guess you're going to have to wait and see for the full reveal. Um, yeah, that's all I'll say. Thank you. Gavin Raider, you mentioned earlier you'd like to release a collected, fully colored version of Turbo Ato when it's all done. Will that be dependent on sales of individual issues? I've been waiting for the collected version after purchasing issue number one just for financial reasons. Uh, totally fair question. So, um, I would say that the likelihood of there being a collected Turbo Atoll is less determined, determined by sales than it is determined <laughs> by uh, just time and effort that I may have available. Um, there is a scenario where I get chapter four wrapped up with our good friend, the Nobby Wood, and it's off to the editor. And while that's happening, I send these black and white pages to uh, a lucky colorist and they go to town and have the time of their life filling in the world of Turbo Atoll. That could feasibly happen. Um, I don't know uh, if I sort of need to pause and breathe and Maybe go through it, maybe correct a few things, make some changes prior to getting a collected version. But I definitely do have aspirations to do a collected version. As I detailed in a previous podcast, I don't know what number somebody will uh, chime in and let us know. Uh, I broke down the financials of doing comic books. And the truth of the matter is, it is a money loser for me. Uh, in fact, I sink thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars, into producing comic books uh, that do not sell um, enough to sort of break even on that amount or earn a profit. But there's nothing I'd rather be doing with my money. I, I have always been a frustrated comic book uh, writer, an aspiring storyteller. So I take my surplus cash and I put it into this because I think the comic books are arguably more important than the figures. I think another important factor here is that all of these individual issues, while they are quite pricey for a single issue of a comic, no, no question there, um, I'm never going to rerun them. You know, I think that once they sell out, uh, that'll be the end of it, and we will, I will sort of shift my focus into this uh, collect works. I think that that is probably the right path. So if you're some of the lucky people that have picked up the individual issues, I would imagine, in the same vein that most of the stuff I've released has appreciated over time, these might actually end up being worth something to somebody. Now, I'm not stating this to sort of spur a, you know, a speculator collective bubble, but uh, I do think that um, people may be searching for these single issues a year down the road or in two years' time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would count people lucky if they manage to sort of pick up these first four uh, because there will be changes and there will be things that are different when we get into, you know, the collected work. The final point I'll make, which is kind of just an interesting offshoot here, is that 
you know, for the past seven-ish years that I've been working on this Knights of the Size project, the attention I have gotten from the professional world, be it offers for licensing or, um, you know, I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to sort of <laughs> say too much, but um, the the sort of interest from former colleagues in the licensing and film and entertainment world and the correspondence I've had with people that I haven't been in touch with for quite some time, it's almost all centered around the comics. Which is to say that these comic stories are something that is more easy to understand and digestible by the larger entertainment industrial complex, if, if you'll take my meaning. Um, it is very hard to communicate to somebody you may want to partner with in a different field or do a deal with uh, a, a toy line like Knights of the Slice and what makes it great and why people like it. Uh, handing somebody a graphic novel that's complete and tells a story is a much, much easier way to digest uh, for people that are sort of outside of the toy collecting uh, uh, hobby. It's also worth noting that graphic novel equals dollar signs to the sort of traditional entertainment world, right? MCU is the biggest franchise in the world, and there's any number of comic imprint labels that have popped up trying to cash in on this, you know, uh, cinematic universe based on graphic novels and comics. So, you know, for the first time in my career, I find that uh, all of these people that reportedly hold the juice in the world and, and get to make films and TV shows and uh, big international publishing deals, they all understand the format of the comic and the graphic novel, which is, you know, uh, a format that I love dearly and have dedicated most of my life to. So, you know, it's very interesting that I sort of have been toiling in obscurity with a toy line that is very meaningful and, uh, you know, has a robust secondary market and means a lot to a lot of people, but... For the normies out there, the only thing that they can kind of connect the dots on is being handed a graphic novel, and suddenly the light bulb goes off. They get it. They understand. Ah, oh, okay. So it's a comic. Well, all right then. So just a sort of interesting note, we are kind of like, you know, catching eyeballs in the mainstream in ways that we never have before, and I think that largely that is because there is now a selection of books that have been built up around uh, this project. Sean Gordon, I'll tell you what, he's got Martian fever, and I understand this. Uh, the dark green on the Mars Guardsman head pack is great. Any chance we will see it used more in the future? Uh, so, just generally, the Martian two-pack went over really, really well. I would actually say that that Mars drop was uh, probably the best drop this year in terms of reaction and sales. And, um, you know, could be historically one of our most important ones. Um, I didn't have any premonition that it would take off quite the way it did. I'm very happy that people connected to it. So uh, I would like to do more Martian stuff in general. I was just kind of going to leave it at that um, and move on and tell other stories. But based on people's enthusiasm, I think that maybe, you know, I could imagine other characters being retrofitted into being Martian warriors, and we can kind of play around a little bit in the setting of Mars. I think that might be fun, and I have a couple 
very early story ideas percolating around that. The other exciting thing that I'm happy to sort of share here, I think I mentioned it on Discord at some point. By the way, we do have a private Discord for patrons. Uh, it is a very nice community, and people are really doing a lot of interesting trading and helping each other out. Uh, and you get access to that by being even the lowest tier $5 patron. So take that into consideration. On the Discord, I stated that I actually have a couple... Um, Martian head packs left, and I have some odds and ends of the clear green body parts. I don't know if it, it definitely doesn't make two figures if I were to put all these parts together, but I think at least you could construct one additional Martian figure. So what I'm going to do at some point in the future is have another Mars army builder pack. It'll be slightly less expensive and will only sort of uh, include one uh, complete body and the head pack with both heads and the shotgun and the sword of mars which is pretty cool so um if you missed out on that it wasn't high demand there will be a smaller version of it coming to the store at some point in the future maybe we'll tie it to another mars campaign Now this is the question I've been waiting to get to. Uh, we touched on this a little bit in the Discord, and so Eric uh, brings it back to us here on Patreon. I know on the Discord you spoke a little bit about the importance of visiting factories overseas in non-COVID scenarios. Could you talk about some of the differences between, say, a Kickstarter creator starting up a new line and somebody like Mighty Maniacs who is joining a brand already in place? As in, does he enter a system with factories already familiar to the Glios product and expectations uh, so it's not as crucial for someone like him to visit. I assume that would also be a big factor in the frequency or amount of product one is releasing, as in if a creator has a couple small releases like, say, Toy Infinity RoboForce, they can get things taken care of from home rather satisfactorily, but when bumping up to something like sales drops twice a month, like Knights of the Slice, it's wise to start saving for some visits. Again, this is in a non-COVID scenario. Basically, when does one cross the line of needing to travel, and what are some of the factors involved in determining that? Th these are really great, and I, I do forgive Eric for the going beyond one question, because I specifically told him to post this on the Patreon so that we could all discuss, because it is a really fascinating thing. So let's start with the first part here. When is it the right time to visit China if you are a toy manufacturer? And again... Everything I'm going to say here is uh, in a scenario where there is not a pandemic and the borders are not closed in China, which they currently are. I couldn't get to China now if I wanted to. Um, when is the right time? I would say, uh, regardless of size, if you take this pursuit seriously, even if it is a part-time thing, I believe it's incumbent upon you as a maker, as an aspiring toy designer, to book a trip to China and go there. Um, if you're starting a, a project from scratch, you know, I think you need to be there to meet and shake the hands of the factory people prior to the commencement of a project. Uh, I really, really do think that's important. Now, when I kicked off Knights of Slice, I did not go to China. I did not um, tour the facilities. I did not, you know, uh, do everything that I'm telling people to do. Now, why is that? There's a couple of reasons. One, I had already met 
and known and got to be friendly with the factory manager. Um, so there was already a rapport and a relationship there. And more importantly, I already knew and loved and respected Matt Dowdy. I considered him a brother. And we had been friends for... Um, God, we're always bad at calculating this. But probably, you know, a decade at that point. And um, I had no questions that, you know, he would be able to substantially handle everything... Um, you know, that would come up. So it was not necessary for me to do it. Now, uh, I was also sort of handicapped in my ability to go and travel to China because, like most creators at that point, I had a job. And it wasn't a 9-to-5 job, granted. And I did work for myself, but I worked in entertainment licensing with Hollywood Studios and manufacturers and licensees and all sorts of stuff. And that was a very demanding amount of work. It's a very lucrative line of work, but, you know, a lot of uh, 70, 80 hour weeks and also a lot of travel on behalf of that job to places that were not in the Pacific Rim. So I did not have the luxury to go and do it, although you could argue I did have the money to go and do it. So what changed for me and going to China becoming a regular thing. Well, I started to be able to see the path ahead of me. I started to see that there was a goal where I could be doing this full time. Um, I also had a wonderful support base with the Patreon um, that was giving me this surplus money that I could easily use to pay for a trip. Now, those patrons that were there during those first couple trips overseas, uh, that was all funded by their money. They got to sort of follow the trip. They got daily updates and lens stories. It was a lot of fun. Like, I was sort of experiencing that for the first time, and they got to come along with me to do it. So, um, you know, that was a, a very sort of fortunate break for me. But uh, I started to take it more seriously and go over there more often because I wanted this to become my full-time gig. And that's where I am now. And I think that... Um, you know, being able to do two drops a month, that is because I've, I've gone over there. I spent the time shaking hands. I've, I've toured the facilities. I've sat on the paint line and gave instructions. Uh, I've eaten the boiled goose in the Chairman Mao ballroom. Um, but also, you know, there's another part to all this. This is what I did professionally way back when I got started in the toy industry, back in Let's see, I worked at Jazzwares around 2003, 2004. And I was sort of the guy that would have to fly over there at the drop of a hat and go fix stuff. So my time going in recent years to China is not my first experience with that. I was actually, that was my, my speciality in the toy industry. I was a fixer that would fly on behalf of companies like Jazzwares. Uh, and I would go and stay in China for six weeks if needed. And... Uh, get everything fixed and upped and running. So I already had a kind of built-in language. I understood Pantones. I understood, you know, the differentiation of plastics. Um, and I had a language already built in that I got to use again when it came to Knights of the Slice. And it's that language and that learning curve that I think is so important to creators. You know, if you never go over there, one, you're never going to be respected in the same way 
as somebody, as a Westerner who shows their face there and makes their presence known. There was a real reaction culturally to that. Uh, they, your words carry more weight that way. Now, the reality is, I think that, you know, a lot of smaller makers have people that can travel over there, have people whose relationship with the factory they exploit. And maybe they compensate this exploitation. Maybe they don't. Um, but they are leaning on somebody else. Their, their deadlines are being made and their product is getting complete and problems are being troubleshooted by the grace of other people. And um, while I definitely lean on other people to help me with that stuff, I don't ask anybody to do anything I wouldn't do. And so that means if something goes awry and I'm allowed in the country, I will absolutely get on the next flight and go over there and fix it myself. I, I won't sort of leave that work to other people. Um, I think that a lot of uh, indie toy companies just rely on the word and good faith of a factory or maybe, you know, agents who might be Western and sort of speak the language and, and uh, bounce from factory to factory working from project to project. But they're not willing to get crammed into a plane for that 16-hour flight and, you know, do the strenuous travel that's involved uh, in learning this stuff firsthand. And I think that that may work for some time, but at a certain point, you know, things do go wrong. And, you know, I, I don't want to speak too much about other people's projects because at the end of the day, I don't really know all the particularities of things. But to me, it strikes me that a lot of issues that have popped up with a lot of crowdfunded lines could have been solved by simply the point person, the creator themselves, hopping on a plane and going over there and seeing for themselves what was happening. Um, so I know that's all a very sort of, uh, that's a lot of tangents, <laughs> but hopefully that gives you some insight into my feeling on it. I think it's super crucial. I think even if you have, you come into a system that is a well-oiled machine, I still think you need to go and make that trip because uh, there's nothing like it. It is incredibly rewarding. You will learn so much. You will understand, you will have such a greater depth of understanding with all of this. So to me, um, I don't even think it's a choice. You know, I think you got to do it. Grant Saunders has a really great question here, and this can be uh, a difficult one to answer, but I think it's worthy of digging into. At what point would you encourage an artist or creator to create a Patreon for themselves? This is a really, really good question. Um, my knee-jerk instinct is wait as long as possible. And I'll, I'll give you, I'll fill that in, I'll give you some backstory, but... Um, I, I think if we're, if I'm just pulling a metric out of my ass that, you know, is unverifiable, my instinct is you probably want to have about 10,000 Instagram followers, uh, and you want to have, I would say five to 10,000 Instagram followers, and you'll want to have sold whatever it is you make, if it's resin figures or comic books or action figures, You'll want to have at least 100 absolutely dependable, die-hard customers. 
Not, to be clear, not that you've sold 100 of an item, that you have 100 unique customers that buy anything you put out. Now, that's just what I would recommend in terms of hard numbers that are unquantifiable, just kind of my, my gut. Um, to get into the more esoteric aspects of this, uh, I see a lot of people rush to Patreon and launch Patreons, and then I see them wither and die. Um, and there's sort of two things happening with that. One, Patreon is a daily effort. It is for me, at least. That doesn't mean I'm posting every single day. But every single day I'm thinking about what's going to happen next on Patreon. Uh, and I think actually if you probably looked at a calendar, I do post every day if you take uh, Lens Stories into consideration on the Patreon app. So if you imagine having a Patreon and the idea of having 365 pieces of content to post every single day on your Patreon, if that's a daunting idea, then it is too soon for you to go to Patreon. Uh, if you're in my position and you have more content than you could ever post, whether it's, uh, you know, myself singing a karaoke song or a drawing of a figure I'd like to make one day or a sketchbook page or a random doodle or some of my previous toy artwork or a podcast, you know, I, I don't fret for what to post on the Patreon. There's more stuff than I will ever be able to, to sort of utilize. Now, to step away from, like, my qualifications for starting a Patreon and get to what I think some of the best practices in preparation for having a Patreon uh, is to make a list of the patrons, uh, the Patreons that you follow and the creators you like. And don't just list their name. List, you know, what it is they do. How frequently are they posting? What are What is their follower count? What is their dollar amount per month if they do publish that and make it an excel spreadsheet take a look at that what are the commonalities here uh, i would also think looking at their instagram numbers versus their patreon numbers is a very telling thing what is their sort of conversion rate right how many instagram followers which are free doesn't require anything to follow somebody on instagram how many of those convert over into paying customers you'll see it's a very, very low percentage. So, I, you know, I think that there's quite a bit of homework to do prior to hopping on a Patreon. And the more homework you do, the better your landing's gonna be, because it is pretty grueling to fight for those first couple patrons. It takes a long time to get people to sign on. And then you have people drop off at the beginning of the month, and it can be a real kick in the balls. Um, so the more prep you can do, the easier sailing it's gonna be. The final, the final thing I wanna say is, um, I get this question a lot about Patreon. I used to get the question a lot about Instagram. And prior to that, it was about Facebook. And part of your strategy as, an, as a creator or an artist has to be agnostic to the platform in some respects. And what does that mean? Well, uh, prior to all this, I had a Flickr that was pretty popular. And I met some really great people through there. I did some great toy trades through there. I met Michael Scottum through there. We became really good friends. I posted my very early art. I posted my resin figures. I got great feedback. Um, Flickr is not a valid platform anymore. Then I had a Tumblr. I think my Tumblr actually still exists. Uh, Destaza Blog, it was called. I'm gonna have to go look. I think it's still up there somewhere. And uh, 
I had very small readership, but I had people that really liked the stuff I would post. Usually it was just vintage toy photos. Sometimes it was some of my resin creations. Sometimes it was comic books I was working on. And uh, sometimes it was interviews with other creative types. This is sort of pre-podcast world. Um, so that's what I would sort of do to talk to interesting people. Uh, then I shifted to Facebook, hated Facebook, deleted my art account from there pretty quick. And then Instagram. Instagram was a, you know, a really good platform for a long time. I met a lot of friends there. Knights of the Slice was launched there. Our toy pizza Instagram is still killing it. I think, you know, it's easily over 10,000 followers at this point. Uh, but at some point, Instagram's going to cease to be a logical platform for people to pour their efforts into, especially small creators, and they're going to matriculate elsewhere. Same thing will happen with Patreon. Patreon to me is in its infancy. There's a lot of bugs they got to figure out, but generally it gets money in the hands of artisans and creators with little interference. And I think that's a super valuable service. But like all things in this world and in this system, it too will sort of get too big. It will take on VC money and have bills to pay and, and the service will suffer. And at that point, I plan to matriculate to whatever the next app is. I hope Patreon sticks around for a very long time. It's been incredibly good for me. It's transformed my life in a, in a very positive direction. But I do realize at some point it will wither and die as well. So I say all that in tempering people that your strategy has to be agnostic to the platform. You have to know how to adapt and move to whatever the right place is, whatever the right app is, as my dog goes nuts because, God forbid, a car drive by. That's a, that's a true violation. We got a really interesting question here from Ian Amling. It seems that both Hasbro and McFarlane Toys have streamlined their production development that uh, every two to three months they're both announcing and releasing new product. For Hasbro, I'm specifically talking about their Transformer line and the DC Multiverse for McFarlane. Do I have any insight into this increased productivity? My suspicion is that a lot of the era, uh, part of trial and error, is now limited by digital model making and physics algorithm that can simulate the stress tests once needed by actual physical products. Um, definitely no on the physics algorithm thing because you have to get your product tested by Bureau Veritas. They make a lot of money doing that. It is the industry standard. And uh, I, there's no way that that cottage industry is gonna get circumvented by algorithms. It, it is too lucrative for all types of product manufacturing. So that's still definitely in place. Now, I'm going to have a caveat here that I it's been a very long time since I've been in the mainstream toy world. I haven't talked to buyers or solicited product in, a, in years, thankfully. Uh, so a lot of my assumptions are going to be going off of how things were done when I was sort of active in the sales portion of the mass market in toys and collectibles. Um, what you're seeing is a sort of post-COVID reality. What does that mean? Well, prior to the pandemic, what would happen is your toy company, you have February Toy Fair in New York, you have Hong Kong Toy Fair, you might do Nuremberg, a couple other shows. 
But essentially, you spend most of your year cultivating what you're going to show at Toy Fair, the, the plural Toy Fairs, uh, and then you wait, and when you have that show, you show it to the buyers, they place orders shortly thereafter, and you have the rest of the year planned out. Now, the pandemic obviously derailed that completely, and it actually showed that Toy Fair is probably not that useful, uh, certainly not in this era, you know, and probably is, a, is an outdated concept and has been for some time. Uh, to sort of hold on to all of your solicitations for one event or two events, and then, you know, kind of plan the rest of the year around fulfilling that, it doesn't make much sense. It's not really necessary. And a lot of that can be accomplished just by directly mailing the buyer as soon as you have something ready. Another factor here is that these companies are now cultivating independence from the retail model. And they're smart in doing that because retail stores were closed for a good portion of this pandemic. There will probably be other waves in the future in which retail will have to be closed down and we won't be able to go to it. So you look at McFarlane, actually pre-pandemic, he started his Kickstarter. He did, what, $3.8 million. So he has the email addresses of uh, I'm guessing tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand toy buyers. So what is the use of a retail store at that point? You have all that information. You know exactly where you need to sell it. On the other side of the field, Hasbro, they have Pulse. They've been increasing their e-commerce presence. I'm sure Mattel is cultivating the same thing. They're going direct to consumer. Physical brick and mortar retail is, you know, uh, going through a crisis in some respects. So I imagine the process is something like this as of today. And I'm speculating here completely. Again, I've been out of the mainstream for a long time. Uh, Todd reads a new DC comic. He likes how Green Lantern is depicted in it. He goes to his 3D sculptor who starts working on that sculpt. Within a couple days, he has something complete. Todd submits it to Warners. They approve it. Todd can already sort of render out a paint master and some promo photos. And within a week's time, he can send that directly to the buyer at Walmart and Target. They give the thumbs up. They tell him the quantities. They're getting purchase orders. And now within 10 days, Todd can place an order at the factory for how many he wants, sends the digital file, the STL, over to China. They start outputting the prototype. And the process is, you know, so far ahead of what it would have been had Todd waited on that sculpt until February Toy Fair and then after the show recuperated and placed his order and chased the purchase order X, Y, and Z. So that's sort of what I imagine is happening now. And, and you are right 100% that the advent of 3D uh, it has sped things up incredibly. I mean, I still sort of painstakingly try to do as much in 2D as I can because I think it is a dying art form and I want to preserve it as long as I can. But every time I do a purely digital sculpt, it is so much easier. I got to be honest. And the results are so much quicker. So I think what we're seeing here is a new, you know, this is a post paradigm shift. This is just don't wait for Toy Fair, get the solicitation out there, call the buyer directly, get their order, get this thing underway. And uh, 
part of, you know, the dissonance with that is, uh, as a collector, it's really tough to understand what is coming out and when, you know, especially Transformer collectors. I'm only sort of a casual Transformer collector, but I go in that aisle and I am completely fluxed. I don't understand what these sublines are. There's stuff that I never saw announced that looks brand new. Um, it is really a confusing mess. And I think part of it is marketing teams don't know how to handle this, right? Places like Mattel and Hasbro, they use a lot of outside marketing firms. They use Litsky PR, the uh, list goes on and on. Um, how do you as a third party working for somebody like Hasbro uh, get your message out there when Hasbro already does a live stream and communicates all the information pretty concisely? You see, the, there's all these really interesting sort of ways that the game has changed now and is, is forced to be modernized with this pandemic. Um, from my perspective, I think it's largely good. I, I don't like archaic structures and the toy industry uh, was full of complete dinosaurs and, and a lot of ways of doing things that make no sense, but that's how they've always been done. And, uh, you know, I for one welcome this new era. Now, this is a question after my own heart. Gordon McKinnon Hall, what would the different characters of Turbo Atoll pick to sing at karaoke? Boy, this is, <laughs> this is a meaty question. Uh, let's see, I'm just going to do this uh, shooting from the hip here. King Kelvin would probably sing The Doors, Riders on the Storm. Jasmine would sing Billie Eilish. Maybe... Um, uh, let's not say bad guy because that's a little overplayed. Let's go with Wish You Were Gay. Rex is kind of uh, uptight. I think he would be singing either The National or Interpol, uh, but one of their more subdued songs. Vaughn is going to be the real party animal here, right? I, I think if people had to choose who they want to have a drink with, well, first of all, Rex isn't going to drink, so yeah, you're going to pick Vaughn. Uh, he's going to go with one of my standbys. He's going to go with A Little Respect by Eraser. Uh, fantastic song, gets everybody happy, gets everybody singing. Saima is going to sing Gang of Four, Natural's not in it, but it might be the Lady Tron remix. Uh, she is probably the best taste out of anybody, obviously. So I, I think that pretty well covers it. I'm not going to go into what the Martians are going to sing because it would be unintelligible to our ears and uh, frankly, quite shrill. Next up, Brent Lawson. Will we see any more Toy Pizza slash O'Neill design crossovers anytime soon? Uh, my only comment here, Brent, is no comment. Moving along to Charles. Just saw that Netflix is doing a live-action Gundam movie. I can't uh, unthink Tokusatsu action. How could they do it right? Uh, well, they have the right director. Um, I do like Jonathan Voigt Roberts. Uh, I do think he's actually a perfect pick for the Metal Gear movie as well. Uh, Kong Skull Island is not a perfect film by any stretch, but it does a lot of very difficult stuff very well, including uh, large-scale action, which he's going to need when it comes to Gundam. Uh, you know, uh, the right amount of sort of adventure, a little bit of humor, uh, characterization. I, I don't think he's a flawless filmmaker, 
but I think he's, he, you know, at least is a very enthusiastic one. He understands genres, and uh, I think it's in about as good of hands as it could be in. Um, also, if you want to know how you would film a Gundam movie, go watch just the robot fights from Robot Jocks. Um, while they are pretty outdated at this point, uh, it does give you a sense of scale and the massiveness of machines in comparison to a human being. And that is a, a really terrible movie, but I think for the time, the effects were pretty captivating. And if you can imagine what you could do with CGI, uh, sort of updating what they laid out, the visual language in Robot Jocks, I think there is a formula there to make this happen the right way. The only thing I pray is that the action does not become uh, very clangy and very hard to follow, uh, you know, such as like the Transformer fights in Michael Bay movies. I think Voight Roberts has a good instinct and will probably have these be relatively grounded devices. He seems to have a sort of military fetish, uh, which I think would be helpful for this. So hopefully, you know, he contemplates real-world implications of these massive robotic characters and the weight that they have and the, you know, the clanging of the gears and things like that. I, I think it's in good hands. Moving along to Charlie Pope, what night was your favorite colorway, and is there a color theory you would really like to do on any particular figure? My favorite changes all the time, but I think pretty consistently I've been very, very happy with uh, the Hypermedic. I think that that is a super cool color scheme. I'd like to utilize that again, maybe sometime in the future. Um, there's plenty of color theories I would like to explore with figures. I have a, a enormous... Uh, sort of um, folder full of color theories and just snippets of things I've seen in nature or interesting decrepit uh, machinery I saw in mainland China or, you know, I, I have more color theory ideas than I will have, you know, minutes left in my life. So I won't get to all of them, but there's tons I'd like to explore. Uh, I would like to, at some point, start incorporating gradient and, and sort of like gradual spray applications. There's been some successful Glyos uh, figures that have utilized that. Um, I couldn't tell you the name of them, but, um, you know, I, I like that sort of gradual spray. Um, and I, I want to do some of that stuff, but I really need to sit down and produce those samples myself so that it's close to what I have in mind when it gets executed. Mike Johnson, who is the next character you want to see made from Shatterfront, and will the Shatterfront story in its entirety ever make it to print slash download? Boy, that's a good question. Um, I think I know who the n the next Shatterfront character would be, theoretically. I don't want to say, because that could be a spoiler for a future release. Um, I don't know if this is ever going to be a, a story that makes it into uh, print. Um, I, you know, every couple months or so I get fired up about it. I go back to the text. I add a little something. I modernize it a little bit. Uh, but it's really, really tough. You know, part of the reason is we lost one of the co-creators of Shatterfront a few years back. And there is a sort of bittersweetness to, you know, anytime I kind of pick up that property. Um, the other thing is like it, it you know, it is a or it was a collaborative effort. It was a bunch of 
you know, kids coming together and then later as adults coming back together. And, um, you know, part of it feels a little hollow for me to do it by myself. And I don't want to like co-opt a group creation and, uh, you know, just kind of steamroll it. So, you know, that's kind of, uh, one story I'm just not sure is ever going to happen in its entirety. Uh, and maybe that's better. Maybe it's better that way. Satomi Moto's own folks and Lance has respectfully one question. Who rescued Rex after he got shanked? Speaking, of course, about uh, Rex's encounter on Mars. Uh, I will not tell you who saved Rex, but I will tell you we've already met them. And I will leave the mystery there to bake for a little bit. Heading over to Facebook questions. Gabe Berrigan, is there any stock left over of the products that were created by the Yeti.com? Uh, I believe... All of our Night of the Slice product was print-on-demand, meaning that they may have the blank shirts and they may have the empty poster pages, but they don't actually print the item until somebody orders it, which is a good strategy to have. It prevents you from having unsold merchandise and, you know, getting too bogged down with inventory. Uh, The problem with that is there is no sort of surplus. There's no leftover merchandise. So I'm pretty sure... Uh, everything that they made has already been shipped out to customers and there's probably not any samples sitting around. So that's my best guess. You are welcome, of course, to contact the Yeti and uh, maybe they'll tell you differently. Moving along to Allison Johnson, what would be one outside-of-the-box character you would make if you didn't have to worry about funds, parts breaking off, etc.? And have I ever thought about... Um, Jelly-like accessories or appendages? This is a very interesting question. So if I had no material considerations for making a figure, um, (laughs) what would I do? I I guess I would probably take the step into a more articulated figure. Uh, I don't know that I'm ever going to do hyper-articulation. You know, I don't know that at this scale knees really need a triple joint. I don't think elbows need a triple joint at the 118th scale. Uh, But maybe I would like to sort of venture into something that has some reasonable articulation of a, uh, you know, of a more advanced variety. So I think, you know, if I had the time and the money, which are two things uh, I don't have right now, (laughs) I think that's probably what I would start thinking about and inching towards. Now, by jelly-like accessories, I'm imagining uh, those sort of vending machine hands that come on a, a string that you can kind of slap on the glass and things like that. If, if I'm reading that correctly, uh, I like accessories like that, but the problem is they don't last very long. Typically, accessories and toys like that just end up being covered in hair and dirt. Uh, you can never sort of get back to the initial stickiness, even if you wash them carefully. And uh, generally, they're, they become pretty gross. So I, I do like them, but no, I don't think uh, that's in the cards for me. Mark Mosman's got a question everybody's asking. What's going on with Diver? Will he surface in the line this year? Um, so I know what the play is for Diver. Uh, Diver is part of a set or a cohort, cohort of... Uh, a genre of figures, let's say. And I know what those figures are. I know what the branding is. I even have a logo. And I imagine this to be a 
crowdfunding campaign we will do together. I'll likely do it uh, privately on my website. Um, I don't really want to do it until I'm done with Chromega and Send5. Now, where are we with those two figures? Uh, Send5, I'm actually going to see the test shot of very soon. I'm excited about this. This is the, the big milestone moment in toy production. So, uh, within the next week or two, I'll have in my hand the very first proof that Send5 exists and the tool is done. And uh, then it's time to move into debugging and painting. And he's in a really good space. And, uh, you know, I think by early summer, Send5 will be in your hands. And that's exciting. Chromega, uh, we've made some good progress on. He's at the tooling model stage, which is the stage, sort of the last stage of pre-production. That tooling model uh, gets cast in wax, gets melted down, steel is poured around it, it makes a mold. Uh, there's going to be some work that has to be done to, to uh, Chromega's tooling model. I can already see it already. I've pinpointed a couple issues I think we're going to have. So uh, he's going to take a little bit more time. I'm anticipating by the end of the summer, you guys will have Chromega in hands as well. So, uh, you know, my, my feeling today is I don't really want to do another campaign until I've fulfilled at least the majority of my obligation for those campaigns. I think I would feel better about taking more money from people for a prospective figure after I've at least delivered Send 5 and I know Chromega is either in the tooling phase or, you know, we're in the sort of test shot phase of Chromega. I just, you know, I know a lot of businesses run on pre-orders and, you know, they promise the figures to be delivered. It's not something I take lightly and I really don't want to have two campaigns that are pretty massive uh, still waiting to ship people goods. It just doesn't sit well with me. It's, it's sort of you know, a glaring box left unchecked. And, uh, you know, I, I, I only want to sort of solicit stuff from you guys for these projects uh, very sparingly. So I think that's kind of where my head's at today. Um, you know, I don't know if that means we're going to do a big campaign this summer. I don't know if it means uh, it's a fall sort of thing we're looking at. But I'm going to take my time and, and do this stuff right. I think also part of the delay with uh, Sen5 and Chromega was obviously the pandemic. I mean, that really slowed everything down. Um, so I think I would have liked to have had them out earlier. I don't know if they would sort of be done and in stores right now. But, uh, you know, I think I initially imagined this is more of a spring item. But... Still, I, I believe the guidelines for any fundraiser I've done is that it takes a year to get the figure to you, and I think pretty consistently we have uh, been early on that promise. So I still think uh, overall we're doing pretty well with it. So to circle back to the original question, what's going on with Diver? He's locked and loaded. He's ready to take the plunge. Just got to get through Chromega and Send 5, and then uh, all the secrets will be revealed. There's one question I missed last week, and I almost missed it again this week. 
from John Emmett, when does an action figure go from being a toy to a collectible? I'd argue something like Hasbro's Vintage Collection and Marvel Legends are collectibles, while Spin Master DC figures are toys. Not that one is better than the other, but there's clearly a difference in execution for what is ostensibly the same thing. Um, I think I, you know, I, I, there's sort of two schools of thought here. Uh, one is I think the line has been blurred for sure. Um, you know, we're of the time where the first generation of real, like, heavy marketed to toy fanatics, which is, you know, anyone that was around in the early 80s, are now grown up and adults. Uh, so we are sort of, we can appreciate toys on two levels. We might purchase a McFarlane figure, and we're most likely also purchasing the Spin Master figures. And they kind of give us, you know, a, a different sort of sensation. So I think that the line is definitely blurred there. I, I tend to kind of uh, agree with your assessment of the categories. Uh, the second part to this is there is kind of a legal or categorical distinction that is made, sometimes in licensing. Uh, I'm also thinking in terms of um, import and uh, the sort of codes that you utilize to bring goods into the country. Um, there are testing standards that are required for something that is a toy or an action figure, but not for something that is considered an adult collectible um, over a certain age group. So there is also a kind of legalese that uh, is applied to these definitions in some cases. Um, you know, whether or not they're sort of true to the to the form or the heart of the item uh, is, you know, open to interpretation. Final question before I bid farewell to you. Philip Barrara, any chance we will get a comic or complete narrative of Rex Gannon on Mars? I'm loving the Mars figures and it is sparking a drive to make a quickie animation. Well, I definitely encourage you to make more animation. It's been a while since we debuted a Philip Barrara original, so definitely uh, you have my support there. Um, I don't know if uh, the story of Rex on Mars will be told. Part of me feels like that original art gallery showing of all the paintings, some of which are long gone at this point, uh, was kind of the best setting for that story to be told. And I like this idea that, you know, the narrative may be lost. Uh, there's a slate of really fantastic postcard comics being worked on right now uh, between myself and Gavin Mackey. I've brought him on board for a, a big cycle of new one-pagers. Uh, Rex on Mars is not part of that, and this is sort of the next focus for me, story-wise, is getting through all these little tiny nuggets that um, push forward the greater story. So um, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. Um, there's a lot more to come on Mars, but I don't know if we're going to have quite a flashback to Rex's uh, time in his late teens. And with that question answered, we are done here, folks. I'm going to head out to the workshop. Even though the last fulfillment is gone and on the way to you, the next one's right around the corner. So I will leave you with our famous sign-off. Peace out.